I thank God for all who have led us in worship today. For all of you joining us in person and those of you joining us online, we are concluding a sermon series called Ramifications of Resurrection. We've been going through 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and today we'll read the last few verses of this very encouraging chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, I'll read verses 50 through 58 from the New Revised Standard Version, and the title of today's sermon is The Sting is gone. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word, help them to hear your word, and Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. Reading the end of 1 Corinthians 15 makes me think of a funeral. This passage is commonly read at memorial services, funeral services, and graveside services. Indeed, I have read it countless times at various cemeteries in any number of conditions. I've read this passage as the July sun shined upon the tombstones and mourners donned their sunglasses and summer dresses. I've read this passage as the spring rain fell fiercely upon the cemetery soil and the mourners grasped their umbrellas and ducked for cover. I've read this passage as crispy sleet covered the graveyard grass and the mourners huddled together in heavy coats to find a modicum of warmth. Each time, once everybody has drawn near to the grave plot, once everyone is still, and once the chatter has faded into a reverent hush, I have read the scriptures declaring the good news of resurrection 
right there on death's home field. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. In other words, our fleshly decaying bodies are not suited for eternal life. These perishable bodies we have right now cannot inherit the imperishable kingdom of God. These corruptible bodies we have right now cannot inhabit the incorruptible kingdom of God. Transformation will be required for us to enter God's ultimate kingdom. Thankfully, Paul assures us that we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the final resurrection of the dead. Rather than becoming a disembodied soul, we will all transform into a new resurrected body modeled on Christ's resurrected body, for he is the first fruits of the resurrection harvest. We know from the gospel accounts that the resurrected Christ looked somewhat different than before, yet still recognizable that he ate fish and invited people to touch his wounds, yet could also pass through walls and disappear instantaneously. He said, I am not a ghost, yet his resurrected body was no ordinary body either. We are dealing with mystery here, marvelous, irreducible mystery. And Paul does not spoil it by spelling out exactly how our transformation will take place or exactly what our resurrected bodies will be like. Instead, he employs the image of changing clothes to describe our transformation from a mortal body into an immortal body. One day when I was 12 or 13, my mother took my brother Rick and me to play golf at a lovely par 3 course in the mountains. We had driven by this course many times and had been wanting to play there for a while. And when we finally walked into the clubhouse, we were thrilled. Our excitement was squashed, however, when we learned that unlike the par 3 course back home, this course required a collared shirt to play. I had not brought one with me, and so I was devastated. But Mom looked around the clubhouse, found a collared shirt at a reasonable price, and bought it for me so that we were able to play the course we had been wanting to play. I still remember the exhilarating feeling of putting on that shirt which made me eligible for such a beautiful course. Similarly, we cannot enter the kingdom of God with what we currently have on. We cannot wear this coat of feeble flesh to the resurrection life. We will need to change into something different, not because the kingdom has an elitist dress code, but because these corruptible bodies we're wearing right now simply are not suited for glory. 
thankfully, Christ has paid the price and risen from the grave so that we can put on new spiritual bodies when the last day dawns and we can enter into the ultimate kingdom of God. It appears that throughout this glorious transition, each of us will remain the same essential person. This perishable body must put on imperishability and this mortal body must put on immortality. We won't look exactly the same as we do now for the resurrected Christ didn't look exactly the same as before which is why Mary initially failed to recognize him in the garden on Easter morning as did the two disciples walking the road to Emmaus. Yet we will maintain distinctive characteristics that make us uniquely ourselves. Just as Christ maintained the scars on his hands and the wound in his side. In short, we will each be different in form while retaining the same personal identity. It follows, therefore, that we will ultimately be able to recognize one another in God's kingdom. The unique person God created us to be will continue to exist yet in perfected form. This makes me think of a funeral too. So many times mourners are longing to see the deceased again, to continue a conversation, to tie up a loose end, to express love more fully to enjoy their company one more time. The good news is that there is hope for a glad reunion in glory where we will join the great cloud of witnesses that has gone before us and recognize one another and fellowship together in unfailing peace, untiring joy, and unending love. Paul is so confident of this resurrection hope that he gets a little cocky. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? He is taunting a personified grave. He is mocking death's weakness vis-a-vis -vis the risen Savior. If you've ever wondered if there's any trash talk in the New Testament, look no further. Paul is trolling death. In doing so, he echoes Hosea 13, 14. O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your destruction? Except instead of O Sheol, where is your destruction? He says, where, O death, is your sting? The Greek term translated sting was used to refer to bee stings, wasp stings, and scorpion stings. Since a sting causes pain, it serves as a threat which incites fear. Many of us flee from bees because we know the potential pain of a sting. A few years ago, a Major League Baseball game between the Cincinnati Reds and the San Francisco Giants was delayed for 18 minutes because bees were swarming around the backstop. 
Ancient people likewise withdrew from bees, wasps, and scorpions so as to avoid getting stung. The sting of death, however, is incalculably worse. In ancient thought, the sting of death was the poison tip that sent one to the underworld of Sheol, the abode of the dead. The sting of death, in other words, connotes the annihilation of life and separation from God. When Christ arose from the grave, however, he robbed death of its sting. Death is no longer a threat to annihilate our existence or separate us from God. Instead, death is a corridor to God's kingdom. Death is a portal to the immortal. To be sure, death still causes significant pain to those it leaves behind in bereavement. This makes me think of a funeral again. We hurt when we lose a loved one because we miss them dearly. I have poured out my own tears at services for departed relatives and dear friends. The pain that death inflicts upon the bereaved is not to be minimized, glossed over, or underestimated. But death cannot harm the believer whom it attacks because it cannot terminate our existence or separate us from God. Like a scorpion without a stinger, death may look scary. Like a wasp without a stinger, death may appear threatening. But Christ has taken the sting out of death so that it's harmless to us in the final analysis. This is why Paul mentions the last trumpet. In the ancient world, trumpets were used to signal triumph at the end of a battle. Likewise, the last trumpet will signal that Christ has won the victory over sin and death and that we are resurrected with him to share in this great triumph. Thanks be to God, says Paul, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Greek term translated gives suggests a donation, a generous gift from God to us. Victory over sin and death is not something we achieve by our own effort. It's a gift we receive by faith. Victory over sin and death is not an accomplishment we make by our own exertion. It's a gift we receive by faith. Victory over sin and death is not something we merit by our own morality. It's a gift we receive by faith. We enjoy all the spoils of Christ's victory strictly on the merit of his work, his effort. 
and his power. As a result, our life overflows with gratitude to God. Our existence oozes with gratefulness. Our abundant thanksgiving is expressed not only with words, but also with diligent gospel labor. As Paul says, we excel in the work of the Lord because we know that in the Lord, our labor is not in vain. Some work, of course, can end up in vain. If we work to create a new invention and it fails, if we work to rebuild an engine and then the transmission falters, if we work to clean the entire house and an hour later the kids have trashed the place, we may feel that our work has been in vain. So why work to spread the good news of Christ when so many will reject it? Why work to warmly invite people to church when so many will never darken the door? Why work to empower the destitute when so many will remain disadvantaged? Why work for racial equity when so many injustices persist? Why tell the truth and do the right thing when the world so often rewards unethical ambition and immoral conduct? Why work to minister the peace of Christ when so much violence continues to unfold? Why work to love neighbors and strangers and even our enemies when so often love is not returned? Why break our backs to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with God when the currents of this world seek to wash away our efforts like a sandcastle from the seashore? The reason is that our labor in the Lord is never meaningless, never futile, and never lost. It is always meaningful, always significant, and always lasting. Bible scholar Richard Hayes writes, the doctrine of resurrection of the dead affirms the moral significance of life in the body. We don't have to fear expending time, energy, and resources for a lost cause because the victory has already been won. Whether we're cleaning a bathroom or singing a song, whether we're serving a meal or teaching a Bible study, whether we're nurturing a child or caring for a senior adult, whether we're painting a house or writing a note of encouragement, whether we're helping the sick or aiding those experiencing homelessness, our labor in the Lord bears eternal magnitude as it participates in spiritual victory and marks an unstoppable trajectory toward resurrection. Yet again, this makes me think of a funeral. The Baptist preacher Clarence Jordan labored for the gospel in South Georgia in the mid-1900s. His scholarship, preaching, and service at Koinonia Farm are legendary. 
partly because he faithfully endured such fierce opposition as he ministered reconciliation, peace, and justice in the name of Christ. Jordan's ministry provided the inspiration for Habitat for Humanity, which was founded by his friend Millard Fuller. The two were so close, in fact, that Fuller was chosen to deliver the eulogy at Jordan's funeral. On that day, after Clarence Jordan was buried, Fuller's two-year-old daughter spontaneously and surprisingly burst into song singing, Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Clarence. Happy birthday to you. What a witness she was. For it is in dying that we are born to resurrection life. What critics of Christianity often fail to understand is that resurrection is no pie-in-the-sky doctrine that induces an escapist mentality or a cheerful inertia. Resurrection is no distraction from life here and now, but is rather a deep spiritual conviction that leads us to glorify God in our corruptible bodies until the day we change into our incorruptible bodies. Resurrection is a cherished belief that fuels our gospel labor in our destructible bodies until the day we change into our indestructible bodies. For we believe that what we do here, in some sense, will carry with us into eternity. Much as Christ carried the scars of his cross to the other side of the resurrection. For my part... I plan to continue reading 1 Corinthians 15 at graveside services until the day comes when we don't have to attend funerals anymore. My favorite part is verse 54, when this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality. Then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. This makes me think one last time of a funeral. As I imagine it, we will have one last funeral to attend in glory. As I see it, the hearse of heaven will roll down the streets of gold and turn into the only cemetery inside the city limits of the New Jerusalem. The glory of God will be shining brightly and the wind of the Spirit will blow through the celestial graveyard rustling the leaves on the tree of life. The angels and all the heavenly hosts will flock to the cemetery for the ceremony and all the saints of old will file into their seats, Abraham and Sarah, Miriam, Moses, Deborah, David, Mary, James, John, Paul, Lydia, 
and all the biblical heroes and all the saints throughout the centuries, our own long-lost relatives and dearly departed friends. Once everybody has drawn near to the grave plot, once everybody is still, and once the chatter has faded into a reverent hush, I imagine Christ will arise with a smile on his face and will walk over to the tomb, the only tomb in God's kingdom. And he will remove the veil that has covered it for so long. And he'll read the epitaph for all of heaven to hear. Here lies death. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? Amen.